Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And welcome to this week's Roundtable, our look back at the big news of the week with three of our of Washington's top political reporters. While this week's news did impact Washington, most of it didn't actually originate in Washington, but instead first in Buffalo, where a lone gunman killed 10 African-Americans in a supermarket, a mass murder he says was inspired by the Great Replacement Theory, which is advocated today by many leading Republicans. Second, in five states where Republican voters went to the polls to choose between those Republican candidates who had Donald Trump's endorsement and those who did not, how'd they do? Third, in Western Europe, where Sweden and Finland responded to Vladimir Putin's campaign against expansion of NATO by announcing their intention to join NATO and thus expand it even further. Meanwhile, Joe Biden's off on his first visit as president to Southeast Asia, and more big primaries are scheduled for next week. Boy, a lot to catch up on, so let's jump right in with today's panel. Philip Bump, national correspondent to Washington for the Washington Post, Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington editor for NBC News Digital, and John Bennett, editor-in-large at CQ Roll Call. Philip, Ginger, John, welcome. Good to see you. Good morning, Good morning. Sir. Good to be here. So let's start with the primary and uh, overall the Republican primaries this week. Philip, what do the results say about today's Republican Party? <laughs> I, I mean, this is we, we keep getting all these tea leaves and none of us seem to be very good at reading them because they tend to be pretty complicated. Right. So we had Pennsylvania, for example, where uh, Doug Mastriano wins the gubernatorial primary for the GOP. He's hard right. He is you know, he, he actively tried to overturn the election results in favor of Donald Trump. He was at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, and he won handily. Uh, but then there was the Senate primary in Pennsylvania in which uh, the results for uh, the Trump wing of the party were not as good, in part because they were splitting the vote between two different candidates. Uh, you know, we had Idaho, which not a lot of people paid attention to, but there was a very hard right candidate for governor there uh, who mm-hmm. did not win. There was uh, this contested secretary of state race there, which, again, the, the Trumpian faction seemed to have split the vote. I mean, it's just a sort of, it, it's hard to parse. You know, of course, there was North Carolina, Madison Cawthorn. You know, what does that tell us? <laughs> you know, he, he is he is too generous in a lot of ways, obviously. Um, and we, we don't really know what it means. Um, but I, I have on good authority from Donald Trump that he actually did perfectly in all of his candidates' huge successes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Ginger, what about that? Everybody's eyes were really on Donald Trump. Okay. And what I saw this morning, I think this is an accurate count. Uh, he endorsed 11 candidates. He had seven wins and four losses. Uh, but as Philip pointed out, a couple of big losses too. So uh, does he still have the juice? 
you know, we're all looking for signs about whether or not he's made a comeback. I think the real takeaway here is not whether Trump's endorsements are winning uh, primaries, but whether being Trumpy is winning primaries. Um, it's about, you know, are voters still into what Donald Trump was selling? And sure, um, you know, the cult of personality is a thing, and it's been a thing his entire time in politics. Um, but the people trying to invoke his movement is also a thing. And and regardless of whether Trump runs in 2024, which is why I think we all care so much about how his endorsements are doing, um, the Trump movement is going to be around as long as these candidates are still um, going out and telling voters the same things he told him. So I think Pennsylvania is a really interesting case study there where he endorsed someone who wasn't very Trumpy, um, Mesut Oz. And um, we see this tight race between him and Dave McCormick, who tried to invoke uh, being Trumpy, but but really wasn't. And I think voters saw through that. And then why it's so close is because it looks like Kathy Barnett, who came in third, um, but really split the Trump vote. She was the authentic Trumpy candidate in that race. Um, and so a Trump endorsement for a non-Trumpy candidate and then a Trumpy candidate really split that vote. Um, and I think that's that's where we should be looking to see how his influence moves forward. Um, his voters are still there. They still, some of them, clearly that sizable number who voted for Barnett, even though she came in third, are still responding to that message. Um, and they're responding to it, whether it comes from Trump or from someone else. And so to me, that's one of mm -hmm. the real key takeaways um, from that race uh, on Tuesday. Yeah. So John, it, it, it's it's hard not to just be obsessed with the Senate race because it's so interesting on so many levels. Uh, as Ginger pointed out, uh, I saw this morning, it's down now to a margin of fewer than a thousand votes between wow. Mehmet Oz and McCormick, which means probably a mandatory recount. Uh, and John, you must appreciate, how do you read this, the, the irony that this could be decided by absentee ballots? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. You right. just you just can't make this stuff up, can you? Uh, you know, Trump took to his uh, social media platform, a truth social this week, and he was at it again, uh, saying that Dr. Oz should just go ahead. I think this was uh, this was Wednesday late morning that Dr. Oz should just go ahead and declare victory because it's happening again in Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. once again, he didn't provide any evidence. Uh, stop me if you've seen this play before. Um, yeah, so so it's just the same playbook, but Trump usually runs the same five plays. Um, Democrats aren't great at stopping those five plays. You know, part of my uh, my ever evolving role at, at CQ Roll Call, I've taken over the soon to be renamed and rebranded CQ Senate newsletter. Uh, so I'm I'm back on the hill, and um, instead of of what I think about Trump's influence and the Trump effect. Um, I think it was really summed up best by uh, two senators I talked to. Uh, Pat Toomey, of course, uh, not the Trumpiest of yeah. senators. Uh, he did uh, take on then-President Trump on trade and other issues. But, you know, he said the Trump effect is more idiosyncratic. And um, he agreed with, with me that it, it's going to be a little, maybe regional is not the way to put it, but, you know, the Trump endorsement is going to work in North Carolina. It might not work as well in Pennsylvania, but then Roy Blunt, these guys are both retiring. So um, they actually gave an opinion about Donald Trump, which is uh, 
not always the case with Republican senators or members. Um, Roy Blunt said that even even if Trump's sway has weakened, he's still the number one power player in Republican politics. And as 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 Blunt put it to me, um, if you're running in a Republican primary, or even if you're usually uh, the Republican nominee running in a general election, you're going to want Donald Trump's uh, endorsement mm-hmm. almost always. So, you know, as I wrote in the, in the newsletter this week, it's possible that Trump can be weakened and have less sway in the Republican Party, and he can still be the most powerful Republican politician. Think about it like if the Boston Celtics next year win 63 games and they're the favorite in the Eastern Conference, and then the following year, they win 59 games. They can still be the favorite in the Eastern Conference. So he's still the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are signs that his influence is is waning a bit. But you know, I, I really I thought about, a lot about what Senator Blunt said. You're still going to want his endorsement. Yeah. Uh, fellow public, go back to the governor's race, Doug Mastriano. Um, as you pointed out, very involved in the effort to overturn the election, brought a lot of people down here on buses uh, to, on January 6th to, to, to Washington. Um, is, and this is Pennsylvania, right? A mm-hmm. purple state. Let's, um, too extreme, too far to the right to win in November? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a really, really interesting question, right? Because I think normally one might say, if, it, you know, if we are looking at the rules of 2010 politics, we'd say yes. Like categorically, yes, he's too he's too far to the right to win in Pennsylvania. You know, the, the sort of Christine O'Donnell trying to run in Delaware sort of uh, uh, bid. Mm-hmm. But there are two differences here. The first is that we now know that those old rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. You know, Donald Trump was too extreme to win the presidency, right? Um, you know, uh, all of these Trumpian candidates are, are too extreme to win, except when they then go on to win. And then, of course, we're talking about what is expected to be a very friendly to Republicans uh, uh uh, election this year that we you know the, the indications are uh, based on the historic patterns that we've seen presidential approval ratings congressional ballot uh, polling so on and so forth uh, that this is likely to be a year in which republicans do well um, and so mastriano sort of has uh, the wind at his back in that regard republicans are really energized to come out i think that mastriano will help spur a lot of democrats to come out in pennsylvania as well uh, but again that's an uphill climb for the left and you know this is no longer the case I think it's important for people to remember what Donald Trump showed is that if you run hard to the right, what the one thing that can happen is you can bring out people who are really far to the right and who didn't vote because they thought the, the Republican mm-hmm. Party is too moderate. But then all the moderate Republicans come out and vote for the Republican anyway because of partisanship. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's really what made Donald Trump successful. You know, does that work for Mastriano in Pennsylvania? It, it very well could. Right. Uh, Ginger, you mentioned earlier um, Kathy Barnett. Uh, and of course, um, that, that surge for Kathy Barnett, some people thought she might even, uh, pull through and win the primary. Uh, talk about, uh, if we're talking about somebody extreme, she seemed to be too extreme, even for the Trumpers and even for Fox news. And of course she blamed her loss. Uh, here she is on Sean Hannity. Never forget what Sean Hannity did in this race. Almost single-handedly, Sean Hannity sowed deep seeds of disinformation, flat-out lies every night for the past five days. 
uh, Ginger, <laughs> Sean Hannity or not, right? She scared the hell out of the Republicans. She really did. And I would be shocked if this is the last we hear from her, given uh-huh. how much yeah. she came from behind. But I think one of the things that really got missed by Washington at large was that video her campaign put out talking about abortion and about her mom being raped and her being the product of that. Um, it really was... Um, something that I think resonated with um, the part of the base that is talking a lot about abortion right now, who is looking at litigating whether or not there should be exceptions for rape um, to these new abortion laws. And she was a poster child for that movement. Um, And so as much as they, she was, you know, viewed as being scary as much as Sean Hannity tried to go after her and Laura Ingram maybe tried to help her. So it's a little bit of a fox on box fight there. Um, I think that that um, she was the kind of person, the kind of message that that part of the Republican Party really wanted to hear amplified. Um, and I think we all sort of missed that because we weren't paying attention when she, she started to rise up. And then when she did kind of come through, we were hit with a bombardment of oppo that hadn't really been vetted, which was a whole other problem. Um, but if anybody was really wondering what it was that let her campaign take off, go watch the video. Um, and you will hear the the things that that faction of the party really wants to hear said. Um, and I think that it's possible even in this cycle, in this year, as we see Roe um, very likely get overturned in the coming months, um, that they put her out front to deliver that message more. I, I don't think we've heard mm-hmm. the last of her. Uh, and so let's not forget um, that there were also some Democrats running <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Uh, John, my I was fascinated with the campaign of John Fetterman, the governor, who certainly is a different kind of Democrat. Look, he campaigns in shorts and T-shirts. His big issue is legalizing pot. And he walloped Connor Lamb 58% to 26%. Is this sort of the, the new, I don't know, Every man, Jesse Ventura, kind of look for the Democratic Party? Well, it could be. And um, I have to give credit to a colleague of mine, C.Q. Ruckall, Herb Jackson, uh, Connor out like a lamb. Hey-o. Um, yeah, just yeah. just a stunning defeat. Connor Lamb was a rising star. And, yeah. you know, he really got, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from Barack Obama, he really got shellacked uh, this week. But Fetterman, yeah, Fetterman looks like he could play. Um, he could play right tackle for Penn State. He's a big guy, <laughs> tattoos. You know, he's got the bald yeah. head, the goatee. Uh, he he campaigns in hoodies, like you said, and shorts, and um, yeah, he's really kind of an everyman. So the Democrats certainly aren't known for a deep bench, and um, Mr. Fetterman is is a different kind of of candidate, different kind of guy. Of course, he landed in the hospital this week uh, yeah. with a stroke. Yeah. Um, his, his wife noticed he wasn't feeling well. His wife noticed that his lip dropped and and raised uh, in a in a very unnatural way, and she rushed him to the hospital. So he he won his primary against Connor Lamb uh, from his hospital bed, which um, yeah. you know that's a very human thing. I, I think that probably uh, helps him in the general. Uh, mm-hmm. A little bit, so yeah, this could be a, a new kind of Democrat. They certainly uh, need an infusion of of something, just something different, something new, and and Fetterman might be it. Yeah, 
Uh, well, so there's so many primaries. We didn't get to Idaho. We didn't get to North Carolina. We're not going to have time. But I do, before we go into other issues, I want to take a quick look at what's coming up in Georgia. Philip, governor's race in particular there. So Brian Kemp, the incumbent, Donald Trump's enemy because he didn't find all those extra votes that Donald Trump wanted him to find. Uh, he is way ahead of Donald Trump's candidate there, David Perdue. Again, what should what how how sure. should we read those tea leaves? Yeah, I mean th- these ones are easy to read, quite honestly, right? I mean this is uh, it is not only the case that Kemp is beating Purdue pretty badly; it is also the case that Kemp has long been beating Purdue pretty badly, even despite the fact that Trump came and tried to help Purdue. So Kemp was winning pretty big, and then Trump came to try and help Purdue, and Purdue didn't really gain much ground. Uh, Purdue has run pretty much only on the idea that he thinks that. Kemp should have overturned the election results, which, of course, he should not have done because Donald Trump lost the election in Georgia. Um, And I think that it is a a real rebuke, not of Trumpism, but of Trump's arguments about the election, at least in a state that he lost. Right. And if you're a Georgian, you know, this is this is why Doug Ducey in Arizona and why uh, Kemp in uh, Georgia actually upheld the election results because they knew they were accountable to Georgia voters or Arizona voters, right? That, that, that in those states, they couldn't simply play willy nilly. Hey, you know, we're just going to overturn this thing because they knew there'd be a backlash. Uh, you know, this is the question about Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who has you know, said that he would have overturned the results in Pennsylvania. If he's actually governor, does he actually do that? Or is he suddenly at a different level of accountability? Regardless, yeah, this is bad news for Trump. There's no spinning it. There's no way for him to come out of this looking good. You know, he tried to sort of salvage what happened in Pennsylvania by doing this last minute endorsement of Mastriano. There's no win here for him. Uh, there is happily a win for democracy, which, you know, I, I will take. <laughs> uh, we could all rejoice in. Right. Uh, uh, and Ginger, Chris Christie is going to campaign for Brian Kemp in Georgia this week. And I, Mike Pence either already has or is committed that he's going to also Mike Pence breaking with Donald Trump on this one. That's pretty significant. I mean, we're seeing Christie and Pence and some of these guys who um, are not really very quietly putting together possible 2024 runs um, take the other side. I mean, as Philip said, I mean, the race and, and, and Georgia has gotten into a huge gap. Um, you know, Kemp isn't even on the air or uh, Purdue isn't even on the air right now. Uh, Kemp seems to be leading handily here. So is not exactly a bold act of courage to go out <laughs> and campaign for the guy who's um, leading by a good deal now. Um, but I, I think what we've seen um, is some separation between Trump and some of the folks that were allied with him before. Now, Christie has become a pretty vocal critic Pence is trying to sort of navigate this line where he gets all the credit for everything that happened. The Republicans like in the Trump administration, but um, isn't responsible for all the things they didn't like. Um, That's a tough one. Um, But I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. Um, And I think we're going to see, depending on how some of these go, uh, whether or not they might become a little more critical of of Trump and what could really be a preview of 2024. Uh, and John, you're the uh, sportsman here on the roundtable, always. Um, in the Senate race, it looks like football, there's no doubt, at least in the Republican primary, carry the way. And this is a, a clear Donald Trump endorsement and win with Herschel Walker. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Herschel is uh, running away with things, shall we say, <laughs> to use the fo- keep the, the sports uh, metaphors flying here. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell was on Fox uh, last evening. 
And you know, he spoke very highly of, of Herschel Walker and, and said the Republican Party is, is firmly behind him. Um, he also took uh, a, a, a shot at Donald Trump as, as the old crow and the Donald uh, continue to go at it in the media. Um, he, he brought up the, the, the governor's race down there with, uh, with Governor Kemp. Um, and, and he said, Georgia shows that, that the Republican Party is on its way to having fully electable candidates. Uh, that is not a ringing endorsement <laughs> of the MAGA uh, the MAGA candidates that Trump got behind, that is McConnell saying mm-hmm. that by and large, um, you know, more establishment Republican candidates are uh, are being nominated and, and headed for general election races. So, you know, that's something else. <clears throat> excuse me. That's something else to watch as yeah. we uh, we get ready to head down the stretch here. The midterms is is the McConnell Trump battle for the party. Uh, McConnell was asked uh, last night by Brett Baer. If he's interested in being uh, Senate Majority Leader, everyone under the sun expects the Republicans to take control of the Senate. Uh, McConnell, of course, played coy on that, but we have to think about how these two interact through the media and and behind the scenes as as MAGA candidates and and more McConnell candidates uh, are elected to office or in close races down the stretch. You know, will Trump endorse someone? In a general election, that's a more McConnell Republican. And what does that? What does all this mean uh, in 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 a few years from now? If if the Donald does run again, and, and McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader, can those two work together, or or will Trump force McConnell out? And boy, that that would be some kind of fight uh, to see Mitch McConnell moved out of the way by Donald Trump. Uh, we've been talking about the primaries. Of course, the primaries are just a warm-up from the general election. Uh, and a final question before we take a break here on the political side of things. Um, we saw yesterday Oklahoma um, ab- embrace a bill, uh, anti-abortion bill, uh, like the Texas bill, but goes even beyond Texas, beyond Mississippi, the most restrictive anti-abortion bill uh, in the country. And of course, uh, this is we expect the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade as early as next month. Um, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee is already out with an ad suggesting that this is going to be the number one issue uh, in the general election. Here is the DSCC uh, quick ad. If Senate Republicans win in November, they will light women's rights on fire. They will make abortion illegal everywhere punishing women, even in cases of rape, incest, or to save a mother's life. And they're coming after birth control. Unless we vote. If we protect and expand our Democratic majority in the Senate, we'll protect women's rights to make their own decisions. A quick take from each of you. Is that going to be the winning issue for Democrats, Philip? Well, I think that the Democrats don't have a lot of issues which might be winning issues. So I think it's obviously the case that they want to try and elevate this, particularly to appeal to women, uh, which, you know, that that, that very clearly does. Uh, is that going to work uh, in the face of, you know, a lot of the challenges the party has? I don't think any of us really know. Yeah. Ginger? I think that it is absolutely going to 
um, invigorate their base. And if you look at the polling NBC put out on Sunday, we see an enthusiasm bump among Democrats. And I think we can point very clearly to this. Um, I think that- Which is key for turn, which is key for turnout, of key course. For turnout. Right? Absolutely key for turnout, yeah. especially in the midterm election. I think though, when you talk to folks like Marjorie over at uh, student, Susan B. Anthony List, who pushed for this, who's very anti-abortion, they expect that and they are baking that into their midterm plans, right? They think that this will help Democrats and they're trying to preempt it. So whether or not at the end of the day it helps Democrats is going to depend on how these two sides square off, I think, at the, at, in, the, in the lead up to the election. Yeah. John, your Republicans you talk to on the Hill, are they concerned about this? Yeah, it's definitely on their minds. Um, they, you know, they, they don't want to, <laughs> it's interesting. Usually when, when you bring this up to a, a, a Republican Senator, they pivot to, as they do in other remarks, uh, to, to the actual leak of the draft decision. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you know, right. I, I don't think this is necessarily a fight that they want in public there. I think they're willing to have it, but, um, you know, they're not eager for it. Democrats certainly um, you know, when you talk to Senate Democrats, they're eager to run on this. And I think Philip hit the nail on the head. They don't have much to run on. They have a president with no coattails, um, a president who, you know, in, in the latest NBC poll, I believe his very negative rating is 40 percent. And that's just two percentage points lower than Donald Trump, who's done all sorts of things. So, you know, Democrats are eager to run on this, but I think Philip's right. We just don't know yet um, if, if, it, if it will make a difference. Okay. All right. So let's get on to some of the other issues of the day here after a quick break first here on the Bill Press Pod. We'll be back with today's roundtable, uh, Philip Bump and Ginger Gibson and John Bennett in just a moment. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. They are the good members of the Laborers Union, over 500,000 strong, the backbone of the American labor movement, uh, active in the construction field, already rebuilding our infrastructure in the energy field, building solar panels, uh, wind turbines, and old-fashioned pipelines as well, uh, active also in the field of healthcare with uh, over 100,000 government workers. The good members of the Laborers Union under President Terry O'Sullivan, we salute them, thank them for their good work, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. 
Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with uh, the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable joining us from uh, NBC News Digital, Ginger Gibson, from CQ Roll Call, John Bennett, and from the Washington Post, Philip Bump, President Biden, off uh, on his first presidential trip to Asia earlier this week in the wake of that mass murder at the top supermarket in Buffalo. President Biden went up with the First Lady to Buffalo and spoke about the Great Replacement Theory, uh, denouncing those who preach it and advocate it. Here is President Biden. I hate that through the media and politics, the Internet has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced by the other. I call on all Americans to reject the lie. And I condemn those who spread the lie for power, political gain, and for profit. And Ginger, there are leading members of Republican members of Congress who have publicly in the Congress advocating the Great Replacement Theory. Could this backlash on them? I think we... I I mean, it's a really complicated question. I think that um, there's been a a portion of the American public, a portion of the Republican Party that have embraced these really terrible um, views. And I think that backlash is hard because they've become baked in um, to the political calculation and they've become baked in to some of these views. Um, I think also like there's just been this hardening that like what what is what does it cause backlash if people already think that they're wrong on a number of fronts? Um, mm-hmm. I do think that it's important for everyone to talk about what is being said um, and what is going on, and that these things aren't okay um, because there is possibly somebody sitting at home um, like this guy said he was bored and reading 4chan posts um, that maybe can be convinced not to believe it if they hear someone they like and respect telling them that this is abhorrent and wrong. Uh, Philip, the only Republican that I saw who stood up to say this is wrong and we have, the party has embraced this and we got to throw these people, I mean, reject this as a party and reject Republicans who espouse this theory was Liz Cheney. What yeah. is that? Yeah. <laughs> She's, she is someone who is unburdened by the need to appeal to the Trumpy base, right? She has already made her separation from that group. It was a, a rough separation that occurred you know, in the middle of last year when she was ousted from her leadership position because she was you know, outspoken on what had occurred on January 6th. She no longer needs to try and tell the Republican base the things that Republicans think the base wants to hear, which, of course, is a very 
different thing than what the base, um, you know, will actually respond positively or negatively to. But this is Republicans broadly are following the lead of people like Tucker Carlson and echoing this idea that Democrats are trying to swap out real Americans with, uh, you know, uh, non-white immigrants, which is, you know, let's just distill what it actually is. Liz Cheney is not uh, beholden to trying to reinforce that same worldview that all the rest of them are. And so she can say things like this is dangerous and this is bad. Uh, one of the goals, I think, for a lot of mainstream and more moderate Republicans for the past seven years has been to try and figure out how they get people to wind down the rhetoric and to lower the temperature. Uh, and apparently the strategy, the way to do that, if Liz Cheney is any example, is to simply disavow being mm-hmm. pulled into Trumpism uh, broadly. Boy, what a freedom it must be that she feels, right? That she doesn't have to think about what the MAGA people are going to think about what she says. She just she just says it anyway. Uh, John John Bennett, uh, it, it, you're talking to uh, Republican and Democratic members of Congress. The one thing that struck me after Buffalo was this is the first time after a mass murder like this, and God knows we've had far too many of them uh, in the last few years, is that there wasn't an immediate cry again for more tighter gun control legislation. Um, the talk was more about the great replacement theory. Does that say that Congress, Democrats, have just kind of given up on getting any gun control legislation passed? They certainly know they don't have the votes uh, to do anything on guns. Um, they also they also acknowledge that, you know, in, in the what we think are still competitive uh, house races where you have uh, more moderate Democrats in those districts, you know, the Second Amendment is very popular. So, you know, what can they do if they want to have a shot at, you know, I don't think for House Democrats right now, it's about trying to hold on to the majority. I think it's about trying to set themselves up to not lose by such a margin that it will be hard to recapture mm-hmm. uh, the majority in two years and four years and six years. And, you know, if you put a gun control bill on the floor right now, you know, you could anger a lot of voters in in those uh, in those more competitive districts to the extent that we have competitive districts with gerrymandering and redrawn maps and everything. Um, so, so they don't but but they know they don't have the votes. They don't they're not close to the votes in the Senate. Um, so I think it's it's more for them, uh, as, as House Democrats have done. Uh, trying to get at this issue of replacement theory and and white supremacy, and and that's what House Democrats they passed they've passed a bill uh, on domestic terrorism to give the Justice Department and and other uh, the Department of Homeland Security and others you know more tools and more authorities to try to identify um, individuals like the Buffalo gunman who yeah as Ginger said was bored during COVID and and you know, was self-radicalized and radicalized by the internet to try to identify those people and to try to prevent uh, these mass shootings that are just are fueled by hate and racism, um, you know, but long before someone is, 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 is ready to actually um, start shooting. And, you know, it's, it's a different way to get at the problem, but they, they know on guns, they just don't have the votes. Yeah, right. Uh, covered a lot of territory so far. Just two issues I want to touch on quickly before we uh, move on to our favorite story of the week. Uh, President Biden is already in South Korea on the first part of his the first leg of uh, his first presidential trip to Southeast Asia. Uh, Ginger, what's the mission here? What's the goal? Uh, is this sort of to 
try to pivot from Western Europe and Ukraine to China? I think we see the president um, out on the road trying to show Americans that he's engaged in a multitude of issues that he's paying attention, that he's not holed up in the White House. I think there was a lot of criticism in his first year, and he's trying to address that. But I think the goal here is to show a strong show of allies in the region and a strong show of allies against China. Um, You know, this um, war in Ukraine that Russia launched uh, launched in the early days, you know, it's obviously stretched on much longer than many people thought, but in the early days, the concern was that it would inspire China to do its own uh, invasions in the region. And so I do think that this is a bit of a, of a show of force, of a show of agreement of our of our allies in that area, that we um, are there, that we're paying attention, that the U.S. is watching, and that we wouldn't tolerate something like that. So um, it's important, I think, for the president to show that he can do a lot of different things and be in a lot of different places. Um, and I think this is probably an example of that. Uh, Yeah, Philip, this follows through, doesn't it, on President Obama, of course, when Joe Biden was the vice president, uh, on his famous pivot to Asia, away from our almost exclusive attention to Western Europe in the past. Yeah, right. I mean, and obviously, I think that it's safe to say that, uh, you know, since uh, Obama left office, the salience of making that pivot has has only grown. uh, We have seen you know, that, that China obviously has emerged as a much stronger power since then, uh, that China is taking a more active role in uh, world affairs than it used to. Uh, you know, so this is, there are a lot of reasons why this makes sense broadly for the United States uh, to, to engage with, but also even more so than it did then, you know, to, to the extent that it's possible to sort of, you know, cobble together a coalition, which uh, can, can be an effective uh, counterbalance to what China's doing in Asia. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not foreign policy expert here, but it's pretty clear that that's what Biden's trying to do. You know, and also, given what's going on with Russia and Russia's uh, eroded position in world standing, to, to put it mildly, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there are other opportunities here uh, to try and create something more broad, uh, simply because there there is the space that's been created. Uh, and I think both of you have sort of indicated that um, we and the White House sort of has admitted they don't expect any major policy breakthroughs here, or any you know great big world shaking announcements. Just simply uh, the presence, the presence, presence in Southeast Asia, uh, which does speak loudly. All right, John Bennett, uh, we have buried the lead today because, of course, the most important story of the week is the one I will turn to you as our congressional correspondent here, and that is the important meeting of the House Intelligence Committee subcommittee on UFOs. John, really? <laughs> well, you know, con- Congress is going to Congress. And and this is one of the most Congress things they've done in a while. Um, inflation, gas prices, uh, parents can't find baby formula. But hey, <laughs> let's have a hearing about ET. You know, why not? Um, you know, maybe there's something out there. Maybe there's not. I don't think uh, lawmakers got to the bottom of uh, of, of that question. Um, you know, they they played some videos and there was some pictures. Um, I don't I don't I don't know if the House Intelligence Committee. We've, we've come a long way from uh, from Adam Schiff's basement, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I must say I find the whole thing ridiculous. But I still had to wonder when they uh, the Defense Department um, people there reported that there had been 11 near misses with unidentified aerial phenomena. So 
Who knows? Well, <laughs> I, I covered defense for a long time. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me that we spend so much on the defense budget and the F-22 has the greatest radar and the F-35 has the second greatest radar and systems. Um, but yet they still don't know what's uh, what's flying nearby. <laughs> maybe someday we'll find out or maybe there's nothing there. Who knows? OK, uh, thanks to our great panel today. Uh, Ginger Gibson, John Bennett, Philip Bump, uh, for a great look back at the news of the week. We touched almost all of it, but we leave time, of course, for your favorite story of the week. As we always say, with everything happening so fast, with everything recovering, there's always one story at least that just stops us in our tracks and says, holy mackerel, um, that's good, that's bad, that's funny, that's sad. Uh, Ginger, start us off. What caught your attention this week? Yeah, I want to point to a story um, done by my own colleague, Alex Seitzwald, about the mystery pack or the crypto pack, as it's being called, that's pumping millions of dollars into some Democratic primaries and plans to keep pumping millions of dollars to support Democratic candidates in the fall. Um, These are two brothers, Sam and Gabe Bankman Fried, who have um, one of the brothers has made billions off crypto and he's letting the other brother decide how to spend it in this pack. They gave um, Alex an interview and they claim this isn't about crypto at all. It's about the pandemic. Um, But I think that these guys should be on our radar. I've heard them called uh, the future Koch brothers of the left. Um, They have a Mm. lot of money and they uh, follow this uh, movement called effective altruism, uh, where you can do the Mm. best in the world with uh, around the the smallest of margins. And so it's kind of a different approach uh, that they are putting into politics. And I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Uh, They lost big. They aren't worried about that. So we we should be paying attention to them. Crypto pack. I love that. I love that description of it. Wow. Uh, Philip, how about you? Your favorite story? So I've been spending a lot of time this week more than I ought to have been, quite honestly, <laughs> uh, parsing this new movie from Dinesh D'Souza called 2000 Mules, oh. uh, which is just this 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 pastiche yeah. of just total nonsense uh, making these allegations about the election, and which has become quite a phenomenon. And, you know, Donald Trump posted the premiere at Mar-a-Lago. It's, you know, lots of people are watching it. It's making a lot of money. Uh, and so I've been digging into this and doing all sorts of various debunks, lots of great debunks from other folks too. The Atlanta Journal Constitution, NPR, uh, and AP all did really good, uh, solid takedowns of it as well. Uh, but one thing that jumped out at me and I wrote about yesterday, uh, was something that I, I tracked online. So that the theory behind this movie is that they have this cell phone geolocation data, which they use to track these so-called mules who are carrying ballots all over and they have no evidence for mm-hmm. that. Uh, and it's basically just a way to make it sound complicated and therefore impressive. Uh, but we actually dug into this a little bit and we found with the help of some online sleuths that some of the images they were using in the movie to show like, Oh, look at this, look at these, how this person's being tracked around. Look at this person dropping off ballots as my dog goes nuts in the background here. Um, one of the, one of the images that they used was not actually a stock footage of Atlanta, despite the fact that they showed someone dropping off ballots in Atlanta. It was in fact uh, a map of Moscow, uh, which is what they were using uh, to actually show this traffic. So it just, it just shows the intellectual rigor uh, that went into making this film. You've been doing some great reporting on that. It's just amazing to me how far Dinesh D'Souza has gotten in his career, basically saying nothing, but making all kinds of outrageous charges. And- Indeed. Uh, for years and years and years. Uh, thanks, Philip. So, John, uh, your favorite story, 
are you in the sports world again? <laughs> we will uh, we will keep the streak alive. We will stay in the sports <laughs> world. It is uh, PGA Championship week, oh. but one former champion is not there. Of course, that is Phil Mickelson, uh, who, mm-hmm. um, for golf fans like myself, he and Tiger Woods had this incredible rivalry in the late 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, Phil won six majors. He won three Masters. He wasn't at the Masters this year. And just the incredible fall of Phil Mickelson over the last year, really six months, um, he threatened to join uh, this new Saudi uh, professional golf league that's starting up. And he made some inartful comments about the Saudi government. Uh, Of course, uh, the Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who uh, was murdered by the Saudi government, and he was asked about that and said, well, in business, sometimes... Uh, you have to, you know, you have to cut deals with with terrible people. Mm. Of course, that angered the Saudis. So he looks like he's out on the new league. The PGA Tour has kind of exiled Phil. He's not playing at all right now. Um, you know, now we're hearing allegations that he might have forty million dollars or more in gambling debts. Oh, and this is just an incredible fall. Of course, last year, um, Phil. Well, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Phil certainly isn't. He won the PGA Championship, um, and he's been playing. He was playing on the Senior Tour before that, so they called it his Miracle Major last year. And now he's not there, and he's he's swirled in all this controversy, and yeah. it's just really sad to see uh, a legend like that fall. But I think the the takeaway from this, of course, we learned how flawed as a person Tiger Woods is. Mm-hmm. Even though he's probably the greatest golfer ever, Phil Mickelson's probably top five, certainly top ten golfer of all time. And now we're learning about some of uh, Phil's demons. And um, it's just it's really sad uh, for sports fans. And and I don't know if we'll ever see Phil uh, at, a, at a major championship or at any PGA mm-hmm. event uh, again. Yeah, indeed. Sad to see him uh, go out that way. Well, my favorite story of the week comes from Dallas, Texas this week. Uh, I'm sure you uh, all saw this. Uh, I hate to pick on the guy, but former President George W. Bush was giving a speech at his presidential center out in Dallas, where he talked about the a horrible, horrible war. Uh, but he got the wrong war. Here's the former president. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Whoops. Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. Uh... Uh, well, it was nice of the former president to acknowledge his mistake and to make a joke at his own expense of only being 75. I just want to point out the Dallas Morning News uh, hailed that as the Freudian slip of the century. <laughs> Certainly uh, an embarrassment to the former president, but uh, but funny. But good for him for speaking out against the war in Ukraine, for sure. Uh, that's it for today's roundtable. What a great roundtable. Thank you so much, Philip Bump from the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Ginger Gibson, back from NBC News Digital. And thank you, John Bennett from CQ Roll Call. We'll see you again soon, I hope. Thanks to all of you for listening as well. We'll let you go into the weekend now. Have a great weekend. Uh, but don't forget, don't relax too much because we want to see you back on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Take care.